Hey there, audio community. The Sound Girls podcast would like to thank our sponsors, QSC, for supporting our program. And you may think pro audio when you think about QSC, but they're also about making the world a better place. They're committed to things like integrity and building trust and keeping promises. They promote thinking long-term, even when it's more work, and they value inclusion. They promote doing the right thing just because it's the right thing to do. So QSC is about a lot more than just audio, and we're very grateful for their support. So check out everything that they're about at QSC.com. Hi, everybody. Rebecca Wilson here. Zoe Thrall is on the show today, and she's been in the record-making business for over 40 years, working both as an engineer and a studio manager for iconic studios such as The Power Station, The Hit Factory, and The Palms. She shares her do's and don'ts when starting out in studio work and talks about how each move in her career informed the next, plus tells us about some pretty unexpected twists and turns along the way. Although Zoe is fundamentally a New Yorker, she joins us today from Henderson, Nevada, where she is director of studio operations for the Hideout Recording Studio. Right. Hello, Zoe. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Rebecca, for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, yeah. You're such an icon with over 40 years of audio experience, and uh, it's an honor to meet you and have you on the show. That makes me old, I think. (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) it does, but it makes you wise, okay? Ah, Wise, too. I'll, I'll take that. And that's why you're here, and that's why we want to hear from you. So if you could just start by telling us a little bit about how you started in audio, what drew you to it, and who helped you along the way. Sure. I was a musician from a very young age, you know, like seven or eight years old. And I was one of those kids that any instrument you give me, I would want to learn it. Not that I was very good at any of them. (laughs) Well, maybe I was at one. I was good at one of them. Which one? But Flute. Okay. And that led to, because I was good on that instrument, in junior high school, they asked me to learn the oboe, which is a very difficult instrument. And I agreed to do it. I had mixed feelings about it because it is, you know, it's an instrument, if you know anything about this instrument, you rely completely 100% on the quality of your reed. And if you don't have good reeds, you don't have good tone, you don't have a good instrument. So... You know, it's a very frustrating instrument to play. Anyway, long story short, I did. And it ended up that that instrument opened up so many doors for me because nobody plays it, right? Mm, So into high school, I go to college for music. And in my freshman year at the school I was at, got exposed to audio. Now, in order to go into the audio program, you had to be in the music department. So... I didn't audition on flute because there, there's so many flute players. A lot of flute players. I auditioned, yeah, I auditioned on oboe, and of course I got in and was able to transition to the audio department. So that's how I got started in audio and was smitten from day one and just just loved everything about it. Loved acoustics, just, you know, just loved the process, record making, and that's how I started. So they went into record making in that college too? Well... As a, not so much how we do it in the professional level, but just the process of learning the equipment, signal flow, you know, tape machines, etc. So just being exposed to everything involved with record making. I wouldn't say the actual process of record making because, you know, there were no record producers there. The producer is the one that teaches you how to make a record. But the technical and 
physics uh, part of it, you know, sure, that part sure. we learned in school. Yeah, which is always, for me, the most daunting. Yeah, people don't realize what's behind the actual, um, the math and the, and the science of it, you know. So after school, yeah. how did you land your first gig in the professional audio realm? You know, in my senior year, I'm getting ready to graduate, and I wanted to get an internship at a major recording studio. So I lived near New York, not in New York, but maybe an hour and a half outside of New York, north of the city. And I started researching the studios there and had my heart set on three of them, um, Power Station, Secret Sound, and Record Plant. So I contacted all three studios, said I was graduating in a few months, would they take an intern, blah, 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 that typical route. And two of them, I went secret and record plant agreed to meet with me. I actually did some work for not that much. I I wasn't offered a job or anything, but I went to record plant and just hung out for a few days and it was fun. This was on a break this semester before I graduated. And for anybody who who doesn't know, Record Plant is one of the iconic studios in New York that had a ton of records come out that were mainstream. Yeah, so that's much. great. You got to go there. Okay. And then? But I really wanted to work at Power Station. And Power Station was kind of an up-and-coming studio in New York. Uh, the people that built it were, came from Media Sound. So it was uh, Tony Bon Jovi, Bob Walters, and Bob Clearmountain. This came from Media and opened Power Station. And so I, I really, really wanted to go there. Anyway, long story short, I contacted them and they said, no, we don't need any interns and they hang up on me. It's like, oh man, okay. <laughs> Month passes and I'm like a couple of months away from graduation. I call again. It's like, oh, just check it again. Do you need an intern? No, we don't need anybody. Click. <laughs> like, oh my God. I'm really not going to get in the studio. Oh so I called again and I said, look, I'm going to be... I'm flying in from school, graduating. I'll be in New York City for a few hours. Just let me come in and interview, and then I'll never bother you again. (laughs) And this was one of the owners, Bob Walter. He's like, okay, maybe if I do that, she'll leave me alone. So Persistence wins. Yeah. I fly in that day with my bags to an interview, leave my bags down in in the lobby. I go up for the interview, and Bob hired me that day. So I started oh working God. that day. I had to call my dad and say, I'm going to be a little late coming home because I just got a job. <laughs> that's, uh, that's parents' magic words. I've been yes, so happy. Yeah, yeah, very much. He probably thought I was crazy too. But <laughs> gonna it takes a little this, crazy. Yeah, It does because now it meant I had to commute an hour and a half to and from work every day, but that's a whole nother story. But, you know, so that was the beginning. And I worked my way up. And it's the very typical story of, you know, answering phones and then starting to set up rooms with the assistants and going to the tech shop and fixing headphones and doing everything you could possibly do to just help out. Keeping your mouth shut and knowing your place and knowing when to ask questions at the right time. Absolutely. And just working your way up. And that's, you know, that's that's how it all started. Yeah. And so then yeah. at Power Station, you were there for quite a long time. Well, I was there for a long time over two regimes, let's call it. Because the, the first time as an intern, you know, advancing to assistant engineer, etc. That was an, a year and a half. But then I ended up leaving to work full time for a record producer named Stephen Van Zandt, who had been 
producing a number of records on his own, uh, and then also starting a solo career with his band, uh, Little Stephen and the Disciples of Soul. So it was an opportunity. Again, this is where the oboe opened the door because we were, I was assisting with him on his first solo record. He needed this specific sound for one of the songs, and his uh, guitar tech, Ben, said, you know, Zoe plays oboe. Is that the sound you're looking for? And he goes, yes. <laughs> and so I played on the record. And when we finished the record, he said, you know, I'm going on tour. Do you want to come on tour? And I was like, oh, my God, that's not something I ever thought about doing. I was very happy at Power Station. I was being mentored by some of the greatest producers and engineers the planet has produced. It was a huge, huge decision for me. It was very much a turning point. But I decided, look, I'm 22 years old. When am I going to get a chance to go on a world tour? You know, right. I think I'm going to do this. So I did. It ended. I ended up working for Steven for 11 years that advanced into, you know, record coordination, engineering, a number of things, four world tours. So, you know, I learned a lot. Could you, could you tell us a little bit about who Steven Van Zandt is? Because he's so important. He's a musician, record producer, songwriter, probably best known uh, as Bruce Springsteen's sidekick in the E Street Band. He plays guitar in the E Street Band, still does. He's also very well known as an actor, which is something this whole I didn't other know. story. He played Silvio Dante in The Sopranos. Oh, my God. And, uh, yeah, wow. so, uh, but he, from a music perspective, he's known as uh, being in Springsteen's band, but very respected as a producer and songwriter on his own. So, yeah, that's, um, that's who yeah. he is. Yeah, great. So you go out on tour with him. What did you, what was touring like for you at age 22? You know, it was fantastic. Are you kidding? I mean, see the world <laughs> totally. for free? You know, but touring is exhausting. And I will tell you to this day, I don't know how people that are now Stephen's age now, how they tour. It is exhausting. But, uh, I, you know, I, I learned again, being mentored by Stephen, learning so much about, all right, what does an agent do? We're on tour. Who's the agent? What, like, why is there an agent? He has a manager. Like, why do you need both? And so... There's that. And then when off the road and making records, right, in between, learned everything about record production, publishing, right? Contracts, things. Contracts, record yep. contracts, all that stuff I learned from Steve. And so, you know, so appreciative of having been able to been in that environment. He was very politically active as well. So I got to do a number of things that probably in a typical music environment you wouldn't be exposed to. For example, we were very much involved in the anti-apartheid movement. He wrote that, you know, probably your viewers are too young to remember this, but there was an anti-apartheid anthem called Sun City, which he wrote and produced. I didn't know he produced that. And okay. wrote it, yeah. Wow. And involved 52 musicians, uh, and it was an amazing, amazing project to be part of, to have coordinated it. And to have worked with all these amazing artists and ultimately culminating in being able to meet Nelson Mandela. You, I so, tell me about that story. I read yeah. that about you. So, you know, I mean, <laughs> it doesn't get any better than that, period. <laughs> so you flew over there and you were acting as head of the foundation that you set up for the apartheid. Well, I wasn't head of the foundation. I was one of the directors, but I met Mandela on his first trip to New York. We did a fundraiser, well, his first trip to the United States. 
one of the cities being New York City. But we coordinated a fundraiser for him that raised $500,000 for the African National Congress. And then at that dinner, I was escorted him to his table. That's how I met him. But then later went to South Africa. Now we're jumping ahead years when he finally got released from prison. Well, he was released, obviously. Um, But uh, doing, it was like his birthday and all these artists came together and did a show in South Africa, which was mind blowing. It was absolutely incredible. Yeah, it's one of those moments where you're like, never in a million lifetimes would I have thought that I would be standing. That's how I felt when I worked with the Dalai Lama. And you're just like, wow, never thought that that rock and roll would lead here. (laughs) Another very similar in historic figure in the very same way. I mean, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Civil strife. And yeah. 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 So that's a beautiful parlay that you got to experience. So after working with Stephen... Mm -hmm. You went back to Power Station? No, you went to another studio. Went back to Power Station. Oh, Um, you did go. Okay. Steven's career had a time, uh, this is like 11 years in, early 90s, had a time when he was kind of in flux. He didn't know what he wanted to do. Did he want to continue the solo career? Springsteen was on hiatus. He didn't know what he wanted to do. And it was just at that time that Tony Bon Jovi, who owned Power Station, called me and said, I'm looking for a manager. Do you want to come back as studio manager? like, oh man, okay. And again, another big life decision. I went back to Power Station. Yeah. And how was it coming back as kind of with all this experience in your belt? Did you have a different roster of responsibilities or was it, did it feel like home or how did that? It felt like home, but I was scared to death because as much as I knew about the music industry, I hadn't really done budgets and overseen a staff. I mean, there was some of that working with Steven, but not complete responsibility, hiring and firing people, that kind of thing, you know, like this kind of business, real business side. And um, so, you know, I had to do what I had to do, just learn really quickly. Obviously the studio environment I knew, and I had gotten exposed to how to negotiate studio time, for example, Mm. when I was there before. And certainly working with Steven, being on the other side, I'd negotiate with recording studios all the time because we were making records and I worked at all kinds of studios in L.A., New York, Nashville. We were all over the place, you know. So I did learn from that, from being on the other side, on the, on the producer's side. So it wasn't a complete natural thing, but, you know, I learned quickly, I guess you could say. And then how, for the second time around there, how long were you there? I think it was... Maybe four years. Okay. It ended up closing. Tony lost it to the bank, unfortunately, and it closed for, I don't know, I think it was less than a year. I can't remember now. And then it was bought by another party who opened it as Avatar, and I went back and worked with, uh, with them again as the manager. In between that time, I worked with the Bennett family, and they were building a studio in New Jersey. So it was fun working with them. Uh, that's Tony Bennett. Uh, I was just going to say, it's very, yeah, his son Day is a fantastic engineer and he was building a studio and it was great to be able to work with him. But, uh, you know, went back to Power, Sta- uh, Power Station slash Avatar after that. And then when was Hit Factory? Okay, so <laughs> Avatar <laughs> fell through after four years. Had some other, this had nothing to do with the business. It had some other things that I won't get into. <laughs> that the person who owned it had to relinquish it, let's say. 
and that's just it's rock when, and roll. It's it's it's, right, it's, it's yeah. yeah, it's a lot more than that. But <laughs> okay, right. Uh, but Troy Germano, who owned the Hip Factory, called me, and we had been friends for many, many years. Known the Germano family since I went into the studio business. It's like, oh man, the Hip Factory. You know, the Hip Factory is like this iconic nine studios, five mastering suites, this huge facility in two buildings, right in New York. It's like, you know. Yeah, maybe uh, this maybe this is a good fit. Let's do it. <laughs> what was some What were some of the artists that you remember seeing there, and records that were made there during your time that people would recognize? There is Countless. no one you can't. St- I mean, Paul Simon, Springsteen, Elton John, you know, Beyonce. I mean, anyone. I, yeah. Anybody, was, um, you know, Luther Vandross, you know, doing you know Broadway shows, and I mean, everybody, everybody worked there. Period. I mean, it's sure. really everybody. It's, yeah. That's... You know, so uh, it's a hell of an experience. You know, that studios like that really don't exist anymore. There were 70 employees to oversee that. It's ginormous. Yeah. It's unbelievable. It just doesn't happen anymore. It just can't. I mean, how do you maintain a facility that huge? You know? So what happened there? Or I guess not what happened there, but what happened with you there? You were there for how long? And then yeah. the Palms? Um, Is that... Yeah. Again, <laughs> these iconic... <laughs> New York studios have, you know, iconic stories. <laughs> yeah, iconic problems. But, but Eddie Germano, who had built it, he passed away, and the family just didn't want to maintain it anymore, and they they sold it. So, and again, timing, boy, is timing everything. It was just at that point. I get a call from the Palms, which is in Las Vegas, saying they were building a studio. Would I be interested? And the funny thing about that is, I never pictured myself living in Las Vegas. It's like I was a diehard New Yorker. I, had, yeah. I, in fact, had been oh. talking to people about building another studio in New York at that point. But the first time they called, I flatly said no. And I'm not moving That made to Vegas. them want you more, of course. <laughs> maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe. But a, a, a mutual friend of the casino owner and I, who knew that existed... <laughs> <laughs> um, said, look, why don't you go see what they're building and then make a decision? Of course, he's right. So I did. I went and met uh, the owner of the casino. He showed me the plans. It hadn't been built yet. In fact, the building it was going in hadn't even been built yet. It was going to be on the third floor of a 35-story tower. And um, the thing that convinced me to do it was the person himself, George Maloof, who was the owner of the Palms. I saw how serious he was about building the real thing, bringing the right people in. Fran Manzella, for example, was the acoustician. The design was impeccable. George's um, focus on how it was going to be marketed was compelling. And it's like, you know what? I think I want to work for this guy. You know, like this guy is serious and I want to learn from him. And that's, you know, three months later, I was living in Las Vegas and I'm still here. <laughs> wow. 17 years later. <laughs> yeah. I love when you find people that you just can feel that they have so much to offer in terms of learning. That's what I've always gravitated towards more, more or less. And I'm curious about the Palms because one, as you talked about, you don't think of Las Vegas as having some big rock and roll scene or people are going to want to come there. So did they just make it so much of a luxury studio and they built it out so well that people wanted to come? And what kinds of projects did they do there? This is the genius of George Maloof. No one had ever built a studio of this caliber in Vegas. Now, that is surprising simply because... Vegas is an entertainment city and had been for 50 years at that point, right? 
the iconic, you know, the Sinatras, the, you know, the Dean Martins, you know, you name it, had been coming here. But no one, even in those days, had built a studio. They're it's now just, just your shows. Yeah, live shows. Yeah, exactly. Now, there were a handful of smaller studios here, but nothing on the level of, like, a power station, a hit factory, a record plant, you know, a village recorder, so you name it. There was nothing like that here. And it took a George Maloof to realize you build it and they will come. And that was the case. Now, what was unique about it was the very fact that it was inside a casino. So that gave me, as the manager of the studio, this enormous leverage to court artists to Las Vegas. Because, number one, that's something I totally underestimated, the true 24-7 nature of Las Vegas. So mm-hmm. it lives yeah. on the kind of schedule that artists make records on. So when they're done at 3 in the morning, right, after working a 12, 14, 16-hour day, there is still some life out there to get a great meal, get a nice cocktail before they go to bed, right? And there's still some vibrancy to the city where you can't go anywhere else any music center, certainly, where you can get that. So that kind of full service aspect of it was very, very tempting to, you know, the higher end artists. And it was really proven to be so. It was really build it and they will come. So, you know, we had a good 14-year run there. That's brilliant. (laughs) I know. I'm sorry about that. So many stories end with that till COVID. So could yeah. you talk a little bit, too, about the TV work that kind of came through that studio? Well, I, I almost forgot about this, but we did do a reality show out of the studio at the Palms. How did you even know that? Just a little <laughs> one, right? Just the small real world, which was like blew oh. the doors off reality. <laughs> okay. Well, that's what put the Palms Casino Resort on the map. So keep in mind, this is 2001. 9-11 had just happened in September, and the Palms is due to open. A brand new casino was due to open in November. I mean, this is a disaster. There's no flights. There's, no one feels like doing any vacationing, nothing. Who was in the no. mood for that? No. George Maloof spoke to the folks at MTV about this new show they're launching. He went to the president of the hotel and said, Jim, we're going to knock down the entire floor the 23rd floor, and rebuild a big, giant suite out of it. And Jim's looking at him like, we just finished this thing. What are you, <laughs> what talking, are you talking about? about? We're going to knock it down? But they did. They knocked it down, built this gorgeous, huge suite to film the real world in. And that's what put not only Ponce Casino Resort on the map, it opened this idea to the rest of the city that you can do this kind of thing. And then all the other casinos followed. There were so many other shows that mm. followed. But in addition, at the studio specifically, which I forgot about until you just brought this up, we did a reality show called Living Lohan that mm. was set out of the studio. So Lindsay Lohan's little sister, Allie, and their mother, this was the you know, day-to-day trials and tribulations of making a record for Allie, right? Bringing the producers in, blah, blah, blah. So my husband and I ended up being in this reality show simply because ch- I was the manager and he was a record producer. And we were in the show. It was the number one rated real, uh, a show in its time slot. A&E wanted, I think it was on a I can't remember now, wanted to bring it back for the next season and the Lohan family didn't want to do it. But it was very successful in the season. That it, I mean, how that interesting. It yeah. 
everybody would want to see a record be made of that nature. I mean, it's great. That's that's brilliant. Everyone, everyone always asks about the, sorry, they always ask about, well, is it really reality? And it is because what the producers do is they put you in situations. So, all right, Allie's coming down to do her vocal, talk about it, blah, 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 and then just go. But all the, there's no scripts or anything. You are just doing your deal, you know? It's situationally real. Yeah. Nobody knows what the other person's going to do or say. They just kind of set the stage and and then roll the marbles into the room together. Yep. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) That's so great that uh, you're part of that. And uh, I'm sure, yeah, in a lot of scenes, I'll have to find that and watch it. That's great. So I guess, so post-COVID now, so the Palms, I'm sorry to hear that shut down a studio there. So how did you make your next move? And, and just tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, the studio, well, the Palms has since, the, the, the property has since opened in April of this year. But the studio itself is still closed, unfortunately. But a little more than a year ago, the owners of the hideout, where I work now, called me. And I had been friends with them, and they were a friendly competitor. They were the other major commercial facility in Las Vegas. And they, you know, we started chatting and... You know, over it took a few months, but uh, I decided, you know, I really like these folks and I really like the studio and I think I'm going to do this. And it was a great decision. Um, the Cherko family that owns the hideout, they're fantastic to work for. You know, real record people still making Kevin Cherko, who is still a record producer, songwriter, engineer. His son, Kane, works out of here. His daughter, Chloe, who had been managing the studio prior to me arriving, um, you know, they're all very serious uh, record folks, you know, so it's just fun to work for them. So a lot of the people that that listen to our show are really wanting uh, career advice. So okay. what could you tell somebody who was really interested in either mixing, finding a job mixing in a studio or working in management in the studio? Or what would you say? Well, if you want to be an engineer recording slash mixing, I'll tell you, you're so lucky right now. And this is why. You have the internet. <laughs> when I was coming up in it, there were books and that was Me it. neither. Yeah. yeah. You know? I had a textbook. There, yeah, exactly. And there's so much good material, some bad, but some yeah. really, really, really good stuff you can get on the internet and learn some techniques from some of the best people, you know, like Pensado's plays, Mixed with the Masters, all these so good. Just immer- if you really want to do this, immerse yourself. Start there because you're going to learn a lot right there. When you do finally get some exposure to a studio, keep your mouth shut and your ears open. Seriously. Mm. Yeah. Just talk to the people that have been working in that environment for a long time about the process. And you will learn a lot from that. And then over time, you'll start getting it, you know, getting it, meaning how do you conduct yourself in a recording session, right? When do you say something? You know, just because you're in the room and you are the engineer, let's say, doesn't necessarily mean they want to hear your opinion on everything. Most of the time they do, but a lot of the time they don't. So you just, you have to be able to read people really well and read the situation really well. There's some fine engineers that have lost gigs because they didn't know how to conduct themselves That's you know, right. in, in yeah. the studio. So all of that, all the psychology of that is almost as important as your skills as an engineer. 
Really, really, really is. Because after all, you're going to be in these rooms for hours and hours and days and days and weeks and weeks upon end with the same people in a close environment, very intimate, very exposed. You better be a good person and be willing to have that give and take and what's necessary to, uh, to make a great record. Yeah, I think that's that's really great advice. And then say somebody didn't really have the money for school or you could mm -hmm. just apply the old fashioned way, right? As an intern at first in some studios or is that still a thing? I tend to look for someone that has some audio background. Now, it doesn't necessarily have to be schooling, but something in your background that shows me you already have an interest in it. Mm. You know, I don't really like to have someone just come in cold that says, oh, I want to learn how to make records. Well, what, what have you been doing to learn anything to this point? You know, you can't just walk into a major commercial facility and just say, here I am. And I mean, I want to see some interest in audio making. Yeah. You know, and audio. your liability, basically, because yeah. of what you just said that is needed mm -hmm. to be good. So get a little bit of experience, you know, put something together that's a, a resume that's got projects or some just shows. I see. Yeah, that makes and, sense. And speaking of resumes, this, all right, I've harped on this for years, but this is, could be the, one of the most important things that you present. This is the first thing that someone sees of you is when you email that resume to someone, right? Yep. That is the first impression I have of you. I'm not seeing you. I'm seeing you on paper. Now, right. if there is a mistake on there, what am I supposed to think? I'm coming from an industry that is detail-oriented. That is nothing but little tiny moves here and there over time, right? If there's a mistake on your resume, a spelling mistake, a typing error, I don't care what you call it, that tells me something. So guess what? Use the tools in your computer. Use spell check and... <laughs> Grammar check and all yeah. that stuff. It yeah. counts. I pay so. for Grammarly, not to be. <laughs> yeah. I do, though. I have the worst spelling, and you're right. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. and now that I hire people, it's absolutely what I look at. I'm like, nope, so. sorry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Something that simple yeah. makes an impression. Good advice. So maybe we could talk, too, about the times that you've learned through some sort of situation that didn't go as planned or maybe a failure in air quotes, um, mm -hmm. maybe what you learned, if you could tell us a little bit about that. I kind of touched on it earlier that I almost blew the palms opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. I made an assumption right out of the gate with that first phone call from the, from Las Vegas, thinking I knew what that situation was going to be. Right. No, how could I possibly know? He, I had an image of a casino owner as a guy smoking a cigar saying, hey, baby, how you doing, you know? <laughs> Absolutely, I would do. What did I know? No. <laughs> Don't yeah, you're, not a music, you're not music people. That's what I would think. <laughs> that too. I thought that too. And, you know, it took Larry Rudolph, who I mentioned we had a mutual friend between George Maloof and myself, Larry Rudolph, who was Britney Spears' manager, called me. He goes, you got to go meet this guy. Don't just say no. <laughs> it's like, you know what? He's right. He's right. So I did go. And I have to thank Larry Rudolph for slapping me upside the head to like, yeah. go see what he's doing, then make a decision. So that was a huge learning experience for me. You know, very young because I excelled at instruments and I was like, oh, he's the first chair person, you know. 
And there mm-hmm. was a time when someone came along and they took the first chair from me. And it was a huge thing for me. Hit. Yeah. And, yeah. And I learned from that that, you know, don't be so damn cocky sometimes. <laughs> I'm like, you can be even better than you think you are. And you can learn from that and be kind to the person that is your challenger. And you may learn something from them as well. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened, you know? I love it. Yeah. it's. I, love, uh, I read something about one of the things you appreciated about Stephen Van Zandt was that he could recognize your potential before you could and would put you into situations that you absolutely thought you weren't qualified for, but you did yeah. anyways because he ushered you in. Mm-hmm. And I think that's always a really important thing to see in mentors. And, and you touched on that, too, with some mm-hmm. of the producers you studied with. Just for people out there, uh, how, you know, always how for the lucky, people. Yeah how, yeah, how lucky was I that I had him in my life to recognize that? An example was we were going to do an album at Sigma Sound, and they didn't have a cue system. And Could you explain people what that means? Okay, a cue system is so when, you're in, when the musicians are all in the room, it's the mix that there you're receiving on their headphones, separate from what the engineer is recording and monitoring in the control room. Now, in the old days, the way we used to send a cue mix to the musicians was the uh, engineer would do a separate mix from the console and send it to them. But that's a very, very cumbersome thing for the engineer. It takes an enormous amount of um, attention and responsibility for them to do basically two different things at the same time, right? So companies came up with little tiny mixers. The engineer could advance the session, assign tracks to each of the mixers, and now the musicians can mix their own whatever they want in their headphones, right? Well, the studio that we were going to record at didn't have a cue system, and Stephen really, really, really appreciated the benefit that having the musicians mix their own mix gave to the musician. So he goes, well, just build one. He said that to you. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like, I don't know. What are you talking about? Just figure it out. (laughs) It's like, go over the studio and build it. Okay. I figured it out. I built a cue system for a Sigma. Without Google, by the way. Without Google. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, Zoe, you're, you are a force of nature. I love it. <laughs> it's just, I don't know. You know, I wish I had some of that, you know, as you get older, I think you, you, you forget that kind of drive, you know, the drive, sure. that, that feeling yeah. of like, I can do this. You know, I can't forget that. So as you get older, don't forget that. Don't forget it. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah. So I guess in closing, um, one of the things I always end the episodes with is a record recommendation. If you could tell me one of your favorite records, top to bottom, that you still listen to today or something new or both, or you can give one or two if you'd like. Well, it's definitely um, Bob Marley, both Legend and Exodus. Can never, ever tire of it. If it comes on the radio, I have to listen to it. If I'm at home, I have to listen to it. It's so good. It just is... He's just incredible. I have the reggae station in my car. Not that I'm a huge reggae fan necessarily, but, you know, I'll just switch over to it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that record, he's so spiritual. It's just tied spiritually. Yeah, it's incredible. Very, very much. Yep. All right. Anything else? My husband told me he went to see Marley, and he was way back. It was a theater, like something like uh, the side, you know, like a 3,000 
person theater. And he was like almost in the last row. He was so mesmerized by Marley that he found himself somehow, he doesn't even know how he did it because he was just so immersed in what was going on musically. He ended up in the front just completely overtaken by the music. You know, really? like in the front row. Yeah. He just made, he just made him his like way up there to, somehow. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. It's, it was that spirit. I mean, you know, yeah. So anyway, not to take that off get on a tangent. There, no, that's, but. that's actually quite brilliant. So thank you so much for your time here, Zoe. And any parting words you might want to say to people? If you have that passion, if you love records, music, audio, that much, there is no better industry to be in, period. Follow your passion. Because if you love something so much, that is what gets you through the hard times. And in any job, there is going to be hard times. Let's not romanticize this. So follow your passion and also be honest with yourself because if you find that you get into this and it's not for you, there are so many other jobs in audio that are so satisfying. It doesn't have to be making records. You could go into radio. You can go into research and development, television, film, so many wonderful careers. You know, even in sales, you have to know a lot about audio if you're selling this stuff. So you know, follow your passion. You'll find the right fit for you. Well, Zoe Thrall, thank you so much for spending your time with us and sharing your path. My pleasure, Rebecca. Great to be with you. The Sound Girls Living History Project is a collection of interviews with audio industry veterans. The project seeks to highlight the careers and achievements of women and underrepresented groups in audio. Interviews are conducted by Sound Girls members with guidance from experienced interviewers in the audio industry. Interviews will be available publicly in our Living History Project and for educational use and research. You can find the Living History Project on the Sound Girls YouTube page, youtube.com slash soundgirls. Hey, are you looking for more audio-related podcasts? Well, check out our friends at the Audio Podcast Alliance. To see all their podcasts, visit audiopodcast.org. Sound Girls Podcast is sponsored by QSC, and you can find new episodes dropping every week in all the normal podcast places. And for more info about what Sound Girls offers, which is a ton of opportunities and career support, check out soundgirls.org. The executive producers of the Sound Girls podcast are Becky Campbell and Susan Williams. This episode was produced by me, Rebecca Wilson, and edited by Christina Hiramoto. Our theme song was written and recorded by Jess Benton, and we send a big thank you to our sponsors at QSC, who, just like at Sound Girls, wants to help empower you with the right tools, support, and services to help you create impactful connections. Find out more info at soundgirls.org and qsc.com.